The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them, here, find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did, not, they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles re replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas appeared cl claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of, of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, 
you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worth, worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you, Ella. That was a long one. We're not going to be able to cover everything. I'll just warn you right now. But why don't we pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, thank you that it tells us uh, amazing stories of courage and of people who trusted in you. And we pray that as a result of looking at this story today, we might be courageous. We might put our trust fully in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the truth about Christianity is it should have died out about 2,000 years ago. It shouldn't have made it to today. It shouldn't have made it now. We shouldn't be sitting here in this room together singing songs about Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be reading from a book that's all about Jesus Christ. It shouldn't have happened. We shouldn't be here. Jesus Christ should have been a name and a story that was forgotten long ago, like the two men that Gamaliel talked about in that story. Because what we know from history is that from the start of the church, so the day of Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came, up until about 300 AD, there were about 10 systematic persecutions of the early church. That's 10 government-sanctioned persecutions of Christianity intended to shut the whole thing down altogether. The Christians were systematically imprisoned. They were tortured. They were killed. And that actually includes some of the men that we read about in this story today. And these weren't quiet persecutions. Christians were fed to lions in the great Roman arenas. They were crucified along the sides of major roads so that everybody could see what happens to people who become Christians. But yet somehow Christianity endured. Somehow you and I are in this room today singing about Jesus. And not only did Christianity endure, but there are great stories from history of these early Christians showing incredible courage, going to their deaths, praying to God, not for their own salvation, because they already felt secure in that, but praying for the people who were executing them that God would show them mercy. There are stories of Christians going to their death singing hymns about Jesus Christ. And so the reason that Christianity endured, the reason we're sitting here today, is because of the courage of the Christians who've gone before us. And so the question then becomes, where did that courage come from? How is that possible? How could people have that kind of courage? And if you're a Christian, you need to know where this courage comes from, because you're now living in a time of major decline in Christianity. And it's becoming more and more challenging to live openly as a Christian in, in even our society, let alone what we've just seen on the screen. You know, let's be honest, in Western society, we're not facing imprisonment or torture or death. But many Christians in the rest of the world are. And some in our own church have faced that. Some are actually here because they face that sort of danger, that kind of persecution. And some of our church members have already gone to live or are now preparing to actually go and move to countries where that could be reality for them. But even if we're not facing that kind of 
persecution. We're not facing imprisonment or torture or death in this country. The Christian church is facing major decline. Earlier this summer, the Pew Research Center reported that the number of active Facebook users has now become larger than every major religion except Christianity. So this summer, Facebook reached 2.01 billion active users, which means it eclipsed Islam's 1.8 billion followers, and it's closing in on Christianity's 2.3 billion followers, and it's closing fast. According to theatlas.com, Facebook's annual growth rate is a whopping 22.8% a year. That works out to, get this, five new Facebook profiles created every second of every day. And compare that to Christianity's growth at 0.8%, and Facebook is going to become the largest global community within months. And so how do we live as Christians in a world where people are more likely to create a Facebook profile than a church, attend a church? How do we do that? Well, I think we have to look back to see what the church was like in the beginning. And the story that we're looking at today is one of the earliest moments when Christianity it should have died, it should have ended. At this point in history, there are only a few thousand Christians in the whole world, and they're all concentrated around a small geographical area. And so it would have been easy to squash it, to, to put it down. And this event in Acts chapter 5, it, it actually, this event could have been the end of the whole thing. But it wasn't. And I think we find in the story where the staying power of Christianity is really found. So let's look at the story and see how it made it, to see where the staying power of Christianity really comes from. So we're going to look at the, the courage of these apostles. So let's look first at the nature of their courage. Just look at the flow of their story, by the way. Here's how the story goes. You can see it on the screen. It goes temple courts and then prison, and then temple courts, and then prison, and then temple courts. Okay, That's the flow of the story. Temple courts, prison, temple courts, prison, temple courts. And the reason they're in the temple courts when the story begins is because they're obeying the commission that Christ gave them back in chapter 1, verse 8. That they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. And so we begin with the apostles preaching the gospel and healing in the temple courts, the very center of society. Then the Sadducees and uh, some other religious leaders, they come and they throw them in prison. And while they're in prison, God sends an angel to let them out of prison. And now what do people normally do once they've broken out of prison? What do they normally do? They run, right? They hide. They try to never show their faces in public again where they could be caught and thrown back into prison. But what did the apostles do? Well, temple courts number two. Did they run? Did they hide? Did they put on silly disguises? No. They went straight back to the temple courts to preach the gospel. And this is where the story gets a little bit comical. I mean, picture this, the entire Sanhedrin, the 50 most important officials in Jerusalem, they're like the Supreme Court, you know, the House of Commons wrapped into one. And they're gathered together expecting to see these defiant apostles brought into them. You know, they're going to sentence them. They're going to give them a talking to. And when they send for them, they ask them to be brought out of the prison cell into the court. They're not there. They're not in prison. Where are they? They're out in the temple courts preaching again. And can you imagine the red faces and the blood pressure of all of those men in the room? So the officials, this is prison number two, they arrest them again. And this time they beat them within an inch of their lives. And you would think that would stop them. 
You would think that a severe beating would put a stop to it, but notice verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I I just cannot get over this part of the story. I cannot get over this part of the story. They go from being beaten within an inch of their lives, they go straight back to the temple courts to preach the gospel. Now, for the average person, one trip to prison is enough, but not the apostles. They show tremendous courage by going back out to preach the gospel, not after one time in prison, but after being arrested a second time and even beaten, they go straight back to the temple courts to preach the gospel. Some of the most compelling stories, either true or fiction, are where one or more of the characters show this kind of incredible courage. And if you saw the Christopher Nolan film that came out earlier this summer about Dunkirk, you know that it's a fictional movie based on the true events of Dunkirk. And what was happening is the British forces were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk between the Channel and Hitler's forces closing in on them. About 400,000 soldiers were facing almost certain death. And Churchill expected that they might be able to save 20 or maybe 30,000 of them, but that the rest would be killed. And in a last-ditch effort to save as many soldiers as possible, he put the call out to anyone and everyone on the south coast who owned a boat, any kind of seaworthy vessel would do, and to hand it over to the Navy so that the Navy could cross the channel and save as many as possible. It's one of the greatest moments of courage in military history. And in this film, there were a number of characters that showed great courage, but the one that stuck out to me most is uh, on the screen now. That's Mr. Dawson. And he stuck out to me because he's an ordinary guy. He's not a great, strong, young soldier. He's a retired guy who happens to own a small wooden motorboat. And rather than hand it over to the Navy, he decides to go himself. Now, this is a fictional story, but apparently, actually, lots of civilians did this. He's just one fictional story about a bunch of true people. Well, as Mr. Dawson and his son and his son's friend, they begin to travel the 30 miles or so across the channel. They pick up a stranded soldier whose boat had gone down. And the soldier wants them to turn back to England because he knows of the danger off the coast of the Netherlands. But Mr. Dawson sticks to his original plan. He's not turning around. He won't be moved. They come under attack by fighter planes and warships, and yet they keep going. And in the end, they save as many as they can and head back to the shores of England, and they head back heroes. And what you see in Mr. Dawson is the same thing that you see in these apostles. You see the real nature of courage. For someone to be courageous, they have to have at least these two things. One, they hold to their principles no matter what. There's another word for that, by the way, and that's obedience. To obey is to follow through, to obey a principle, to obey a truth, no matter what the circumstances are. Secondly, courageous people don't have to, they choose to. Doesn't mean they want to, but they choose to. And these two things, these two things are the nature of the apostles' courage. And just as Mr. Dawson held to the principle that each and every soldier on the shores of Dunkirk deserved a chance to be saved, 
Clearly, the apostles hold to their principle that each and every person needs to hear the gospel, needs to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And not only that, but they're going to be obedient to the very charge that Jesus gave them before he ascended into heaven. Remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what are they doing when they're in the temple courts? Well, they're just being obedient to this command. And notice they're following it step by step. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the first thing. And where are they? They're in Jerusalem. They're being his witnesses. They're being obedient to the command. But second, let's be honest. These men could be excused if they just went home after their first imprisonment. Right? You could just excuse them if they went home after that. And certainly they could be excused if they went home and kept their mouth shut and being beaten within an inch of their lives. We could excuse them and say, you know what, they did their part. But they just keep choosing to go back out. And that's the very nature of courage. A courageous person holds to their principles no matter the opposition. And they do what they do, not because they have to or because they want to, but they do it because they choose to. And I know what most of you are thinking. You're thinking, I don't have that kind of courage. Surely there are some Christians who need to have that kind of courage, but not me. There's Christians who get paid to have that kind of courage, right? I'm just an average person. But just think about it. It takes courage to live distinctively in the culture that we live in. If you're a Christian, how you spend your time is different than how a non-Christian spends their time. It's distinct from them. How you spend your money as a Christian is actually different than how non-Christians spend their money. It is actually distinctively different. You have distinct values that are different than the world around you. It means you make different choices about relationships. It means you make different choices about how you operate at work. And that takes courage. And on top of all of that, it takes courage to talk to people about Jesus in a world where Facebook is going to become the world's largest global community. But you know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it takes courage for you too. It took courage for you to come here today. It takes a tremendous amount of courage then to become a Christian because it means significant life change. It means telling your family and your friends. I mean, the very nature of Christianity is that your faith is public. And so all of that takes a tremendous amount of courage. So not only does it take courage to become a Christian, you need to have courage to continue to live every day as a Christian. Well, there's another story from Dunkirk, except this time it's a true story. And so not only were there normal everyday citizens choosing to cross the channel in their motorboats, but it's been documented that there was even one guy who chose to do it in a canoe. And so he's paddling across the channel in a canoe on his way to Dunkirk. And coming in the opposite direction is a destroyer full of soldiers going back to where it's safe. And apparently a bunch of soldiers shouted down to the man in the canoe, what the heck are you doing? Although I don't think heck was the, <laughs> the word. Uh, and the man in the canoe apparently just shouted back up, I've got room for one more. That's courage. 
That's a man who's holding to the principle that everyone deserves a chance to be pulled off the shore. And no matter the circumstances, he's going to keep going. And he chose to do it. He didn't have to do it. He chose to. And that seems to be the kind of courage the apostles had. Unflinching courage, no matter the circumstance. And you and I would have almost certainly said to them as they headed back to the temple courts, after being in prison and after beating, a beating, certainly we'd see them walking back to the temple courts and we'd say, what the heck are you doing? And you can only imagine them shouting back, saying, we've got room for so many more. So where can we look to find that kind of courage? Well, let's look at where the apostles found their courage. So we've seen the nature of their courage. And second, let's look at the foundation for their courage. The Disney Pixar film Brave is, of course, all about bravery and courage. And uh, I, when I first saw it, I had a hard time uh, understanding it because it was all in Scottish. <laughs> but through the movie, the main character, Merida, is looking for a magic spell or really anything that would change her fate. That's what the movie's about. Change your fate. That's what Disney wanted you to learn how to do. And she doesn't... She wants to change her fate because she doesn't want to be a, a princess. She wanted to be a warrior. That's what she wanted. I think she wanted to defeat the English or something. But by the end of the film, she's realized that the power to change her fate isn't something external. By the end of the film, she's realized that the power to change her fate is internal. The courage is within her. And her final line in the film goes like this. And she, by the way, at this point in the film, it's almost over. She's, she's not talking to another character. She's addressing you, the audience, the person watching the film. Here's her last line. She says, our fate lives within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. That's what she says. And I think that sums up exactly what our culture thinks about where true courage is found. That if you just look deep enough inside of you, you'll find all the strength, all the resources, all the power you need. It's all there somewhere. You just have to have the courage to look for it. That's what our culture would tell us. But that notice, that is not where the apostles look. There's not a moment of introspection here where the apostles sit down and they, they look deep inside of themselves and then they decide to go back out. That's not where they look. The foundation or the source of their courage is external rather than internal. It's something outside of them that they draw their strength upon. And so remember the scene. They're obeying Jesus' command to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. They're preaching in the temple courts at Solomon's Colonnade, which is right in the center of it all, the most important place in the city. In Liverpool, it'd be like setting up outside of John Lewis instead of the ugly Christmas tree thing. And the religious leaders are furious about this. And so they arrest them. And then an angel comes and miraculously lets them out of prison. And then here, here's what the angel says to them in verse 20. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. It's an external source. And so they do. But then they're arrested again. And when the religious leaders ask them why they did it, notice the kind of courage these men have and notice where it comes from. Take a look at their response in verse 29. They've been hauled into the Sanhedrin. Why are you doing this? Why did you go back? And here's how they respond. We must obey God rather than human beings. The kind of courage that they have means that they can obey God above all and in all circumstances. 
even when it's hard, even when your life is in danger, how do they do that? Here they are standing in front of the Sanhedrin who are furious at them. They're standing in front of the governing body who can imprison them for life or even sentence them to death. And this would strike fear into the hearts of any person. Yet they say to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than human beings. And that is courageous obedience. They're willing to obey God even if it means death. They're willing to obey him. The fear was what motivated them. I think the immediate threat of imprisonment and death, that would win out. That would be the winner. But it clearly isn't somewhere deep inside of them to change their fate. And so how is it they can have this depth of obedience? Well, look at what they say next in verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What do they do? Why are you doing this? We must obey God rather than human beings. And then they share the gospel. Could you imagine that being, you're brought in front of the governing ruling authorities. Why are you doing this? And instead of even making a defense, you just share the gospel with them. They tell them the gospel that Jesus was hung on a cross, that he was raised from the dead, and that he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And notice what they say in verse 32, because it's not only the source of their courage, but it's the fuel. We are witnesses of these things. And we're going to come back to the fuel in just a minute, but notice it's what they witnessed in Christ. That's the foundation. That's what they're drawing upon. How could you do this? We are witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's the strength. That's where the foundation is. And they witnessed it all. They witnessed everything. In Jesus Christ, they saw the most courageous man who ever lived follow through with incredible, courageous obedience. And so in Jesus Christ, they must have seen the nature of true courage. In Jesus Christ, they must have witnessed him hold to his principles no matter what. In Jesus, they saw true obedience, but not only that, they saw that it was the obedience of someone who did what he, he did, not because he had to, but because he chose to. They witnessed him in the garden in agony as he sweat drops of blood and cried out, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He chose to go to the cross. They witnessed him as the nails pierced his hands and as his feet, his hands and his feet, and as the cross stood there and he's hanging on it with the crowds mocking him, shouting at him. He saved others, let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, if he's the chosen one, he can come down and save himself. And of course he could have done that. He could have saved himself, but he chose, chose not to. These apostles witnessed a moment of such darkness that the sky itself turned black at midday as the Father for the first and only time in all of eternity turned his back on the Son and pour out, poured out his wrath for all of humanity's sin on Jesus. And in the midst of it, under the blackened sky, Christ cried out with a wail, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They witnessed all of that. We must obey God rather than human beings. 
Where's the foundation? We are witnesses of Christ. They witnessed his body being taken down and placed in a tomb, and they witnessed him resurrected from the dead, and they witnessed his ascension into heaven where he was exalted to the highest place. They witnessed all of it. They saw the whole thing. And it was the courage of Jesus Christ that motivated them to return time and time again to the temple courts. That's what propelled them back into the face of danger. Their obedience resulted from what they witnessed in Jesus Christ. They witnessed his great love through his great sacrifice. And so the thing that motivated them to obey was that they had put their trust in a courageous Savior who obeyed perfectly, who obeyed all the way to the cross. You see, if we obey only when it seems reasonable or easy or profitable, that's not obedience. That's called something else. That's called convenience. That's not obedience. And Christ didn't call his apostles to a life of convenience. He called them to a life of courageous obedience. And it's possible that the thing standing between you and sharing the gospel with your friends and your family is convenience. That's the thing that's holding you back. And so, yeah, of course it's more convenient for us to keep our mouths shut and not share the gospel. That's way more convenient. But it's not fulfilling the Great Commission or the Great Commandment of Acts chapter 1 to be his witnesses. Or maybe if you're not a Christian, the thing standing in the way of you making a decision to become a Christian, it's not that you're not convinced that it's true. Maybe you do think it's true. The thing standing in the way is that you're not yet willing to hand your life over to him in obedience. And so this story, it ought to make us stop and reflect and ask this question of ourselves, am I living a life of convenience or am I living a life of obedience? And in some ways, let's be honest, to answer that question is a fool's errand because none of us can perfectly obey. We'll always find instances until the day we die where we choose the convenient thing over the obedient thing. None of us could ever live a life of perfect obedience, but the good news is we don't have to because Jesus Christ did. He was perfectly obedient for us. And what I want you to see is this. It's what they witnessed in Christ that filled them with the courage to obey. It wasn't their own ability. It wasn't their own strength. They didn't have to look deep inside of themselves. It was an external strength that they saw in Jesus Christ. That's what kept them going back. All they were doing, all these men were doing, was emulating their Savior. And so we've seen the nature of their courage. We've seen the foundation of the courage. And lastly, and briefly, let's look at the fuel for their courage. I mean, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? I mean, I have, there's a couple things I've barely even touched on that are incredibly amazing. There's an angel who breaks the apostles out of prison. Okay? How many times has that happened? There's a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel, and he actually sticks his neck out for the apostles. I mean, this, this is almost more extraordinary than... Uh, the angel performing a prison break because Gamaliel, he's their enemy. He wants them taken down. He wants them gone. Yet he speaks up and saves their lives. And I know what happens is we read these stories and we think those are extraordinary people under extraordinary circumstances. And to one extent, that is true. They are extraordinary people and these are extraordinary circumstances. The book of Acts is like that. The book of Acts, it's like the greatest hits album of the early church. It's filled with all the best stories. 
And none of the songs that are boring, right? It's all the best stuff. But regardless, if you're an apostle, or if you're someone who feels like a weak, feeble Christian, the nature of courage, it's the same. The foundation for courage, it's the same. And the fuel for courage, it's the same for you as it is for the apostles. It's not any different. Look back again at verse 32, because this time I want you to notice the second half of the verse, and here's the fuel for it. We are witnesses of these things. And then here's the second half. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay, who's the Holy Spirit? Well, he's, he's eternally existent as a distinct person of the Trinity with God the Father and God the Son. He's existed for all of eternity. He's fully God. He was there hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis chapter 1. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit converts our hearts and he applies the gospel to us. He sanctifies us. He equips us. He promises to us eternal salvation all to the glory of God the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. He doesn't bend to my petty desires or obey my will. He's not some parlor trick to impress my friends. He is God of very gods. He's of the same substance as God the Father and God the Son. He's eternally existent in perfect harmony with the Father and the Son. That's who the Holy Spirit is, okay? God himself. Now, look at verse 32 again. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now this really is extraordinary. God has given his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Think of this. God's very presence actually living inside of someone. Think of this. The Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters of creation. The Holy Spirit who descended upon Jesus like a dove. Who empowered the apostles to great courage. Living inside of the average person. Just like you and me. It's extraordinary. But it's also ordinary. Because this means that every Christian, whatever your role in the church, apostle, pastor, missionary, coffee team member, baby holder, floor sweeper, and however long you've been a Christian, 70 years, 7 days, 7 minutes, every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. So it's extraordinary, but at the same time it's completely and utterly ordinary. Every Christian has that same Spirit. And if you are a Christian, what this text is telling us is that the Holy Spirit lives in you in order to empower you to be his witness. That you would obey and be his witness. And so yes, it's an extraordinary story of extraordinary courage. These are just ordinary guys. Just ordinary guys. Ordinary fishermen. And we know elsewhere in Acts, the only thing that stuck out about them was that they had been with Jesus. They'd witnessed him. Here's what I find most extraordinary, though, about the whole story. In the whole book of Acts. They rejoice not only in the momentous, remarkable things, like thousands of people becoming Christians in a day, 
But look at verse 41, because in verse 40, the apostles, they're beaten within an inch of their lives. Their backs are bloody. Every nerve of their bodies screaming with pain. And it says this in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Extraordinary. See, Christianity, it's not all rose petals and sunshine. I guess that that's what you think is a nice thing. I mean, there are for certain those moments. But being a Christian also means suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. And here's what I want you to see. You'll, you'll notice this all the way through the book of Acts, by the way, but here's what I want you to see. God is at work as much in the moments when we suffer disgrace for his name as he is in the glorious moments, the sunshine moments. In fact, he may be more at work in the moments where we're suffering disgrace for his name. And do you know how I know that? You only have to think about the cross. The greatest disgrace in all of history. That God himself would be beaten, nailed, and mocked. Yet that's the moment where God is at work. And he did the most for humankind. And so Christianity, it should have died out 2,000 years ago. But it didn't. And it didn't die because first and foremost, Jesus obeyed his commission with great courage. And the apostles who were witnesses of that, they then did the same. And then the Christians who came after that did it, and the ones who came after them did it. And eventually you get stories of great courage about people like William Tyndale and Martin Luther, and then Elizabeth Elliot and Helen Rosevere, and, and then it comes to you and me. And it comes to our church, and it comes to our city, and our world. That's how Christianity made it. And maybe you're like a huge Navy destroyer heading for the shores of Dunkirk, equipped with everything you need to go into battle. Or maybe you're just a little wooden motorboat. Or even a canoe. But regardless of your gifts, or your ability, or your experience, your king, the highly exalted one, Jesus Christ, has given you one job to do, one commission, and it's to be his witnesses. And he's given you his spirit as the fuel. And so put your boat in the channel. Whatever kind of boat you have, there's always room for one more. Always. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that we would be counted worthy to receive disgrace for your name. Amen. Just take a moment. Let God's Spirit speak to you, challenge you, encourage you. Just take a moment.